Chapter Eleven of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope, Volume Two, Chapter Eleven. It was true that Mrs. Algernon Errington had distinguished the Mrs. MacDougall by her notice above all the other ladies whom she met at Doctor Bodkin's. The rest had by no means found favour in her eyes. Minnie Bodkin she decidedly disapproved of. Ally Dockett was a little black-eyed, fat, flirting thing. The elder ladies were frumps or frights or bores. Rhoda Maxfield she had scarcely seen. On the evening of the Bodkins' party, Rhoda, as we know, had kept herself studiously in the background. Mrs. Errington intended to present Rhoda to her daughter-in-law as her own especial pet and protégé, but a favourable moment for fulfilling this intention did not offer itself. Rhoda had not distinctly expressed any unwillingness to be taken to Ivy Lodge, and it could never enter into Mrs. Errington's head to guess that she felt such unwillingness but in some way the project seemed to be eluded so that castalia had been some weeks in whitford without making the acquaintance of miss maxfield as she began to be called even by some of those to whom she had been old max's little rhoda all her life castalia indeed troubled her head very little about rhoda under whatever style or title she might be mentioned we may be sure that algernon never spoke to his wife of the old days at the maxfields indeed he eschewed all allusion to that name as much as possible Castalia knew from Mrs. Errington that there had been a young girl in the house where she had lodged, the daughter of the grocer, who was her landlord, but, being pretty well accustomed to Mrs. Errington's highly coloured descriptions of things and people, she had paid no attention to that lady's praises of Rhoda's intelligence, good looks, and pretty manners. No, Castalia troubled not her head about Rhoda, but she was troubled about Minnie Bodkin, of whom she became bitterly jealous she did not suppose to be sure that her husband had ever made love to miss bodkin but she was constantly tormented by the suspicion that algernon was admiring minnie and comparing her beauty wit and accomplishments with those of his wife to the disadvantage of the latter not that she castalia admired her far from it but she was just the sort of person to be taking with men she had such a forward confident showy way with her some speech of this sort being uttered in the presence of the Mrs. MacDougall was seized upon and echoed and re-echoed and made much of by those young ladies who pounced on poor Minnie and tore her to pieces with great skill and gusto. Violet, indeed, made a feeble protest now and then on behalf of her friend, but how was she to oppose her sister and that sweet Mrs. Algernon? And then, in conscience and candour, she could not but admit that poor dear Minnie had many and glaring faults. In fact, Rose and Violet MacDougall were installed as toadies in ordinary to Castalia. They were her dearest friends, they called her by her Christian name, they flattered her weaknesses, and encouraged her worst traits, not, we may charitably believe, with the full consciousness of what they were doing. For her part, Castalia soon got into the habit of liking to have these ladies about her. They performed many little offices which saved her trouble. They were devoted to her interests, and brought her news of the doings of the opposite faction. For there was an opposite faction, or Castalia persuaded herself that there was. The Bodkins were ranged in it, in her jealous fancy, and so were the Dockets, and one or two more of Algernon's old friends. Miss Chubb she considered to hover as yet on neutral ground. As to the unmarried men, young Pawkins, Mr. Diamond, and the curate of St. Chad's, they were not much taken into account in this species of subterranean warfare, carried on with an arsenal of sneers, stares, slights, hints, coolnesses, bridlings, envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness. I have said that the warfare was subterranean, occult, as it were. Had the enemy been actuated by similar feelings to those of Castalia and her party, hostilities must have blazed up openly, but most of them did not even know that they were being assailed. Among these unconscious ones were Dr. and Mrs. Bodkin. 
minnie had at times a suspicion that algy's wife disliked her but then the manners of algy's wife were not genial or gracious to any one and minnie could not but feel a certain compassion for her which extinguished resentment at her sour words and ways with the rest of the whitford society the bride did not enter into intimate or even amicable relations she offended most of the worthy matrons who called on her by merely returning her card and not even asking to be admitted to see them as to offering any entertainment in return for the hospitalities that were offered to her during the first weeks that she dwelt in whitford that castalia said was out of the question how could more than two persons sit at table in her little dining-room and how was it possible to receive company in ivy lodge but whitford was not quite of her opinion in this matter it was true her rooms were small but were they smaller than mrs jones's who gave three tea-parties every year and received her friends in detachments why was ivy lodge less adapted for festive purposes than dr smith's house in the high street a queer ancient crooked nook of a dwelling squeezed in between two larger neighbours with a number of tiny dark rooms like closets in which nevertheless some of the best crumpets and tea-cakes known to that community not to mention little lobster suppers in the season had been consumed by the smith's friends with much satisfaction as mrs dockett observed it was not so much what you gave as the spirit you gave it in that mattered and she was not ashamed not she to recall the time in the beginning of mr dockett's career when she had with her own hands prepared a welsh rabbit and a jorum of spiced ale for a little party of friends having nothing better to offer them for supper in a word it was whitford's creed that even the most indigestible food freely bestowed might bless him that gave and him that received and that if the algernon erringtons did not offer any one so much as a cup of tea in their house the real reason was to be sought in the lady's proud reserve and a general state of feeling which mrs dockett described as stuck-uppishness castalia was unaccustomed to walking and disliked that exercise riding was out of her power no saddle-horse that would carry a lady being kept for hire in whitford and the jingling old fly from the bluebell inn was employed to carry her to such houses as she deigned to visit at her mother-in-law's lodging was not very frequently honoured by her presence the stairs frightened her she said they were like a ladder mrs thimbleby's oblong drawing-room was a horrible little den she had had no idea that ladies and gentlemen ever lived in such places in truth castalia's anticipations of the errington's domestic life at whitford had by no means prepared her for the reality ancram had told her he was poor certainly poor yes but jack price was poor also and jack price's valet was far better lodged than her mother-in-law however occasionally the jingling fly did draw up before the widow thimbleby's door and castalia was seen to alight from it with a discontented expression of countenance and to pick her way with raised skirts over the cleanly sanded doorstep one day when she entered the oblong drawing-room castalia perceived that mrs errington was not there but instead of her there was a young lady sitting at work by the window who lifted a lovely blushing face as castalia entered the room and stammered out in evident embarrassment that mrs errington would be there in a few minutes and meanwhile would not the lady take a seat i am mrs ancram errington said castalia looking curiously at the girl yes i know i saw you at dr bodkin's i am spending the day with mrs errington she is very kind to me algernon's wife seated herself in the easy-chair and leisurely surveyed the young woman before her her first thought was how well she's dressed her second she seems very bashful and timid quite afraid of me and this second thought was not displeasing to mrs algernon for in general she had not been treated by the provincial bumpkins as she called them with all the deference and submission due to her rank the girl's hands were nervously occupied with some needlework the flush had faded from her face and left it delicately pale except a faint rose tint in the cheeks her shining brown hair waved in soft curls on her neck 
mrs algernon sat looking at her and critically observing the becoming hue of her green silk gown the taste and richness of a gold brooch at her throat the whiteness of the shapely hand that was tremulously plying the needle all at once a guess came into her mind and she asked suddenly is your name maxfield yes rhoda maxfield returned the girl blushing more deeply and painfully than before why i have heard of you exclaimed mrs algernon you must come and see me rhoda was so alarmed at the pitch of agitation to which she was brought by this speech that she made a violent effort to control it and answered with more calmness than she had hitherto displayed mrs errington has spoken once or twice of bringing me to your house but i did not like to intrude and besides oh mrs errington brings all sorts of tiresome people to see me she may as well bring a nice person for once in a way castalia was meaning to be very gracious yes i mean but then my father might not like me to come and see you blurted out rhoda with a sort of quiet desperation mrs algernon opened her eyes very wide why for goodness sake oh he had some quarrel or other with mrs errington hadn't he never mind that must all be forgotten or he wouldn't let you come here i believe the truth is that mrs errington meant slyly to keep you to herself and i shan't stand that indeed castalia more than half believed this to be the case and partly from a sheer spirit of opposition to her mother-in-law partly from the suspicious jealousy of her nature that led her to do those things which she fancied others cunningly wished to prevent her from doing she began to think she would patronize rhoda and enlist her into her own faction besides rhoda was sweet-voiced submissive humble certainly she would be a pleasanter sort of pet and tame animal to encourage about the house than rose MacDougall, who with all her devotion claimed a quid pro quo for her services and dwelt on her kinship with the daughter of lord caldkale and talked of their mutual ancestry to an extent that castalia had begun to consider a bore at this moment mrs errington bustled into the room holding a small roll of yellow lace in her hand i have found it rhoda she cried this little bit is nearly the same pattern as the trimming on the cap and if we join the frilling here she perceived mrs algernon's presence and stopped her speech with an exclamation of surprise good gracious is that you castalia how long have you been here this is an unexpected pleasure now you can give us your advice about the trimming of my cap which rhoda has undertaken for me castalia did not rise from the easy chair but turned her cheek to receive the elder lady's kiss rhoda gathered up her work and moved to go away don't run away rhoda cried mrs errington we have no secrets to talk have we castalia you know my little friend rhoda do you not she is a great pet of mine oh i will go and sit in your bedroom if i may muttered rhoda hurriedly i-i don't like to be in your way and with a little confused curtsey to mrs algernon she slipped out of the room and closed the door behind her she is such a shy little thing exclaimed mrs errington well returned castalia it is a comfort to meet with any whitford person that knows her place they are the most presumptuous set of creatures in general that i ever came across oh rhoda maxfield's manners are never at fault i assure you i formed her myself with considerable care and pains she seems to make herself useful too observed castalia with a languid sneer that she does indeed my dear most useful her taste and skill in any little matter of needlework are quite extraordinary poor child she is so delighted to do anything for me she is devotedly attached to me and very grateful her father really did behave abominably and she feels it very much and wishes to make up for it no doubt the old man repents of his folly and ill-humour now but of course i can have nothing more to say to him however i willingly allow the girl to do any little thing she can she has just been trimming this cap for me most exquisitely castalia thought more and more that it would be worth her while to patronize rhoda 
i shall go to old maxfield myself and get him to let her come to my house said she as she took leave of her mother-in-law and slowly made her way down mrs thimbleby's ladder-like staircase holding fast to the banisters with one hand and not lifting one of her feet from a step until the other was firmly planted beside it on returning home that evening rhoda was greatly startled by her father's words well miss maxfield here's an honourable missus been begging for the pleasure of your company rhoda turned pale and red and said something in too low a tone to meet her father's ear oh yes the old man went on the honourable mrs algernon ancram errington has been here if you please well i wish that young man joy of his bargain our little sally is ten times as well favoured your aunt betty saw her first and says she is mr maxfield at home i answered that your father was engaged in business said betty grimshaw taking up the narration you should have said i was serving in the shop observed old max doggedly and would sell her fine ladyship a penneth of gingerbread if she'd a mind and could find the penny nay jonathan how could i have said that to the lady says she i wish to say a word to him so i showed her into your drawing-room rhoda and called your father and-and there she sat interrupted the old man with unwonted eagerness in his face and his voice in a far better place than any she has of her own of all accounts are true looking about her as curious as a ferret i walked in in my calico sleeves and my apron he wouldn't take them off put in betty parenthetically no i wouldn't and she told me she was come to ask my leave to have my daughter rhoda at her house of course you'll let her come she says for you let her go to mrs errington's and to mrs bodkin's why as to that says i i'm rather particular where miss maxfield visits you should have seen her stare she looked fairly astounded oh father did i not speak the truth i am particular where you visit i told her plainly that you was in a very different position from the rest of the family i am a plain tradesman said i i have my own place and my own influence and i have been marvellously upholden in my walk of light but my daughter rhoda is a lady of the lord's own making and must be treated as such and she has plenty of this world's gear for my endeavours have been abundantly blessed oh father oh father repeated the old man impatiently what did i say amiss i tell you the woman was cowed by me i am in subjection to none of their principalities and powers the upshot was that i promised you should go and take tea with her to-morrow evening rhoda was greatly surprised by this announcement which was totally unexpected oh father she exclaimed in a trembling voice why did you say i should go why for various sufficient reasons let that be enough for you the truth was that castalia had more than hinted her suspicion that her mother-in-law selfishly endeavoured to keep rhoda under her own influence and to prevent her visiting elsewhere and to thwart mrs errington would alone have been a powerful incentive with old max but a far stronger motive with him was that he longed with keen malice that algernon should be forced painfully to contrast the love he had been false to with the wife he had gained he would have algernon see rhoda rich and well-dressed and courted if rhoda would but have flaunted her prosperity in algernon's face there was scarcely any sum of money her father would have grudged for the pleasure of witnessing that spectacle but although it was hopeless to expect rhoda to display any spirit of vengeance on her own behalf yet she might be made the half-unconscious instrument of a retribution that should gall and mortify algernon to the quick that rhoda herself might suffer in the process was an idea to which if it occurred to him he would give no harbourage rhoda sat silent until her aunt had left the room to prepare the supper according to her habit then she rose and going close up to her father took his hand and looked imploringly into his face father she said don't make me go there i can't bear it you can't bear it burst out old maxfield he scowled with a frown of terrible malignity 
but rhoda well knew that his wrath was not directed against her she stood trembling and pale before him whilst he spoke more harsh and bitter words against all the family of the erringtons than she had ever heard him utter on that score he dropped too for the first time in her hearing a hint that he had some power over algernon and would use it to his detriment rhoda mustered courage to ask him for an explanation of those words but he merely answered no matter it is no matter it is not the money i shall not get it nor do i greatly heed it but i can put him to shame publicly if i am so minded the poor child began to perceive that any display of wounded feeling on her part of reluctance to meet algernon and his wife of being in any degree crushed and dispirited would inflame her father's wrath against that family and although she had only the vaguest notions as to what he could or could not do to spite them she had a hundred reasons for wishing to mitigate his animosity so with the gentle cunning that belonged to her nature at once timid and persistent she began to unsay what she had said and to try to efface the impression which her first refusal had made upon her father i-i have been thinking that you are right father in saying it would be best for me to go to ivy lodge you know mrs errington has always been good to me and it would please her perhaps and-and after all why should i be afraid of going there afraid of going there echoed old max with a sternly set jaw and puckered brow why indeed should you be afraid there's some as have reason to be afraid but not my daughter not miss maxfield afraid perhaps people might think it strange if i did not go people what people well no matter for that but if you father think it well that i should go you shall go in a carriage from the bluebell inn and sally shall accompany you and bring you back and see that you are properly attired i would have you wear your best garments you shall not be shamed before that yellow-faced woman i don't believe she has a better gown to her back than the one i bought you to wear at dr bodkin's rhoda waved the point for the moment but after a while she was able to persuade her father that her grey merino gown with a lace frill at her throat was a more suitable garment in which to spend the evening at ivy lodge than the rich violet silk he recommended for the purpose real ladies she urged timidly did not wear their smartest clothes on such occasions and old max reluctantly accepted her dictum on this point but nothing could shake him from his resolve that rhoda should be conveyed to mrs algernon errington's door in a hired carriage so with a sigh she yielded devoutly wishing that a pelting shower of rain or even a thunderstorm might arrive the next evening to serve as an excuse for her appearing at ivy lodge in such unwonted state End of chapter eleven